is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson Love Among the Chickens by P. G. Woodhouse Chapter 20 Scientific Golf People are continually writing to the papers, or it may be one solitary enthusiast who writes under a number of pseudonyms, on the subject of sport, and the overdoing of the same by the modern young man. I recall one letter in which efficiency gave it as his opinion that if the young man played less golf and did more drill, he would be all the better for it. I propose to report my doings with the professor on the links at some length in order to refute this absurd view. Everybody ought to play golf, and nobody can begin it too soon. There ought not to be a single able-bodied infant in the British Isles who has not foozled a drive. To take my case, suppose I had employed in drilling the hours I had spent in learning to handle my clubs. I might have drilled before the professor by the week without softening his heart. I might have ported arms and grounded arms and presented arms, and generally behaved in the manner advocated by efficiency, and what would have been the result? Indifference on his part, or, and if I overdid the thing, irritation. Whereas, by devoting a reasonable portion of my youth to learning the intricacies of golf, I was enabled. It happened in this way. To me, as I stood with Eukridge in the foul run in the morning following my maritime conversation with the professor, regarding a hen that had posed before us, obviously with a view to inspection, there appeared a man carrying an envelope. Eukridge, who by this time saw, as Calverley almost said, under every hat a dun, and imagined that no envelope could contain anything but a small account, softly and silently vanished away, leaving me to interview the enemy. "'Mr. Garnet, sir,' said the foe. I recognized him. He was Professor Derrick's gardener. I opened the envelope. No, father's blessings were absent. The letter was in the third person. Professor Derrick begged to inform Mr. Garnet that by defeating Mr. Saul Potter he had qualified for the final round of the Combe Regis Golf Tournament, in which he understood Mr. Garnet was to be his opponent. If it would be convenient for Mr. Garnet to play off the match on the present afternoon, Professor Derrick would be obliged if he would be at the clubhouse at half-past two. If this hour and day were unsuitable, would he kindly arrange others? The bearer would wait. The bearer did wait. He waited for half an hour, as I found it impossible to shift him, not caring to use violence on a man well stricken in years, without first plying him with drink. He absorbed more of our diminishing cask of beer than we could conveniently spare, and then trudged off with a note, beautifully written in the third person, in which Mr. Garnet, after numerous compliments and thanks, begged to inform Professor Derrick that he would be at the clubhouse at the hour mentioned. And, I added, to myself, not in the note, I will give him such a licking that he'll brain himself with a clique, for I was not pleased with the professor. I was conscious of a malicious joy at the prospect of snatching the prize from him. I knew he had set his heart on winning the tournament this year. To be runner-up two years in succession stimulates the desire for first place. It would be doubly bitter to him to be beaten by a newcomer after the absence of his rival, the colonel, had awakened hope in him. And I knew I could do it. Even allowing for bad luck, and I am never a very unlucky golfer, I could rely almost with certainty on crushing the man. And I'll do it, I said to Bob, who had trotted up. I often make Bob the recipient of my confidences. He listens appreciatively, and never interrupts. And he never has grievances of his own. If there is one person I dislike, it is the man who tries to air his grievances when I wish to air mine. 
"'Bob,' I said, running his tail through my fingers, "'listen to me, my old university chum, for I have matured a dark scheme. Don't run away. You know you don't really want to go and look at that chicken. Listen to me. If I am in form this afternoon, and I feel in my bones that I shall be, I shall nurse the professor. I shall play with him. Do you understand the principles of match-play at golf, Robert?' You score by holes, not strokes. There are eighteen holes. All right, how was I to know that you knew without my telling you? Well, if you understand so much about the game, you will appreciate my dark scheme. I shall toy with the professor, Bob. I shall let him get ahead and then catch him up. I shall go ahead myself and let him catch me up. I shall race him neck and neck till the very end. Then, when his hair has turned white with the strain, and he's lost a couple of stone in weight, and his eyes are starting out of his head, and he's praying, if he ever does pray, to the gods of golf that he may be allowed to win, I shall go ahead and beat him by a hole. I'll teach him, Robert. He shall taste of my despair, and learn by proof in some wild hour how much the wretched dare. And when it's all over, and he's torn all his hair out and smashed all his clubs, I shall go and commit suicide off the cob. Because, you see, if I can't marry Phyllis, I shan't have any use for life. I mean it, I said, rolling him on his back and punching him on the chest till his breathing became stertorous. You don't see the sense of it, I know. But then you've got none of the finer feelings. You're a jolly good dog, Robert, but you're a rank materialist. Bones and cheese and potatoes with gravy over them make you happy. You don't know what it is to be in love. You'd better get right side up now, or you'll get apoplexy. It has been my aim in the course of this narrative to extenuate nothing, nor set down aught in malice. Like the gentleman who played euchre with the heathen Chinee, I state but facts. I do not, therefore, slur over my scheme for disturbing the professor's peace of mind. I am not always good and noble. I am the hero of this story, but I have my off moments. I felt ruthless towards the professor. I cannot plead ignorance of the golfer's point of view as an excuse for my plottings. I knew that to one whose soul is in the game as the professor's was, the agony of being just beaten in an important match exceeds in bitterness all other agonies. I knew that if I scraped through by the smallest possible margin, his appetite would be destroyed, his sleep o' nights broken. He would wake from fitful slumber, moaning that if he had only used his iron instead of his mashie at the tenth, all would have been well. That if he had putted more carefully on the seventh green, life would not be drear and blank. That a more judicious manipulation of his brassy throughout might have given him something to live for. All these things I knew. And they did not touch me. I was adamant. The professor was waiting for me at the clubhouse and greeted me with a cold and stately inclination of the head. "'Beautiful day for golf,' I observed in my gay, chatty manner. He bowed in silence. "'Very well,' I thought. "'Wait. Just wait.' "'Miss Derrick is well, I hope,' I added, aloud. That drew him. He started. His aspect became doubly forbidding. "'Miss Derrick is perfectly well, sir, I thank you.' "'And you?' No bad effect, I hope, from your dip yesterday? Mr. Garnet, I came here for golf, not conversation, he said. We made it so. I drove off from the first tee. It was a splendid drive. I should not say so if there were anyone else to say so for me. Modesty would forbid. But, as there is no one, I must repeat the statement— it was one of the best drives of my experience. The ball flashed through the air, took the bunker with a dozen feet to spare, and rolled onto the green. 
I had felt all along that I should be in form. Unless my opponent was equally above himself, he was a lost man. I could toy with him. The excellence of my drive had not been without its effect on the professor. I could see that he was not confident. He addressed his ball more strangely and at greater length than any one I had ever seen. He waggled his club over it as if he were going to perform a conjuring trick. Then he struck and topped it. The ball rolled two yards. He looked at it in silence. Then he looked at me, also in silence. I was gazing seawards. When I looked round, he was getting to work with a brassy. This time he hit the bunker and rolled back. He repeated this maneuver twice. Hard luck, I murmured, sympathetically, on the third occasion, thereby going as near to being slain with a niblick as it has ever been my lot to go. Your true golfer is easily roused in times of misfortune, and there was a red gleam in the eye of the professor turned to me. I shall pick my ball up, he growled. He walked on in silence to the second tee. He did the second hole in four, which was good. I did it in three, which, unfortunately for him, was better. I won the third hole. I won the fourth hole. I won the fifth hole. I glanced at my opponent out of the corner of my eyes. The man was suffering. Beads of perspiration stood out on his forehead. His play had become wilder and wilder at each hole in arithmetical progression. If he had been a plow, he could hardly have turned up more soil. The imagination recoiled from the thought of what he could be doing in another half-hour if he deteriorated at his present speed. A feeling of calm and content stole over me. I was not sorry for him. All the viciousness of my nature was uppermost in me. Once, when he missed the ball clean at the fifth tee, his eye met mine, and we stood staring at each other for a full half-minute without moving. I believe, if I had smiled then, he would have attacked me without hesitation. There is a type of golfer who really almost ceases to be human under the stress of the wild agony of a series of foozles. The sixth hole involves the player in a somewhat tricky piece of cross-country work, owing to the fact that there is a nasty ditch to be negotiated some fifty yards from the green. It is a beast of a ditch, which, if you are out of luck, just catches your second shot. All hope abandon ye who enter here might be written on a notice-board over it. The professor entered there. The unhappy man sent his second, as nice and clean a brassy shot as he had made all day, into its very jaws. And then madness seized him. A merciful local rule, framed by kindly men who have been in that ditch themselves, enacts that in such a case the player may take his ball and throw it over his shoulder, losing a stroke. But once, so the legend runs, a scratch-man who found himself trapped, scorning to avail himself of this rule at the expense of its accompanying penalty, wrought so shrewdly with his niblick that he not only got out, but actually laid his ball dead. And now optimists sometimes imitate his gallantry, though no one yet has been able to imitate his success. The professor decided to take a chance, and he failed miserably. As I was on the green with my third, and, unless I putted extremely poorly, was morally certain to be down in five, which is bogey for the hole, there was not much practical use in his continuing to struggle. But he did in a spirit of pure vindictiveness, as if he were trying to take it out of the ball. It was a grisly sight to see him, head and shoulders above the ditch, hewing at his obstinate colonel. It was a similar spectacle that once induced a lay spectator of a golf match to observe that he considered hockey a silly game. Sixteen, said the professor between his teeth. 
Then he picked up his ball. I won the seventh hole. I won the eighth hole. The ninth we halved, for in the black depths of my soul I had formed a plan of fiendish subtlety. I intended to allow him to win, with extreme labor, eight holes in succession. Then, when hope was once more strong in him, I would win the last, and he would go mad. I watched him carefully as we trudged on. Emotions chased one another across his face. When he won the tenth hole, he merely refrained from oaths. When he won the eleventh, a sort of sullen pleasure showed in his face. It was at the thirteenth that I had detected the first dawning of hope. From then onward it grew. When, with a sequence of shocking shots, he took the seventeenth hole in seven, he was in a parlous condition. His run of success had engendered within him a desire for conversation. He wanted, as it were, to flap his wings and crow. I could see dignity was wrestling with talkativeness. I gave him the lead. "'You have got your form now,' I said. Talkativeness had it. Dignity retired hurt. Speech came from him in a rush. When he brought off an excellent drive from the eighteenth tee, he seemed to forget everything. "'Me dear boy,' he began, and stopped abruptly in some confusion. Silence once more brooded over us as we played ourselves up the fairway and on to the green. He was on the green in four. I reached it in three. His sixth stroke took him out. I putted carefully to the very mouth of the hole. I walked up to my ball and paused. I looked at the professor. He looked at me. "'Go on,' he said hoarsely. Suddenly a wave of compassion flooded over me. What right had I to torture the man like this? Professor, I said. Go on, he repeated. That looks a simple shot, I said, eyeing him steadily. But I might miss it. He started. And then you would win the championship. He dabbed at his forehead with a wet ball of a handkerchief. It would be very pleasant for you after getting so near it the last two years. Go on, he said for the third time, but there was a note of hesitation in his voice. Sudden joy, I said, would almost certainly make me miss it. We looked at each other. He had the golf fever in his eyes. If, I said slowly, lifting my putter, you were to give your consent to my marriage with Phyllis. He looked from me to the ball, from the ball to me, and back to the ball. It was very, very near the hole. Why not? I said. He looked up and burst into a roar of laughter. You young devil, said he, smiting his thigh. You young devil, you've beaten me. On the contrary, I said, you have beaten me. I left the professor at the clubhouse and raced back to the farm. I wanted to pour my joys into a sympathetic ear. Eugridge, I knew, would offer that same sympathetic ear. A good fellow, Eugridge, always interested in what you had to tell him, never bored. Eugridge, I shouted. No answer. I flung open the dining-room door. Nobody. I went to the drawing-room. It was empty. I drew the garden, and his bedroom. He was not in either. He must have gone for a stroll, I said. I rang the bell. The hired retainer appeared, calm and imperturbable as ever. Sir? Oh, where is Mr. Eugridge, Beale? Mr. Eucridge, sir, said the hired retainer nonchalantly, has gone. Gone? Yes, sir. Mr. Eucridge and Mrs. Eucridge went away together by the three o'clock train. End of chapter 20
This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson Love Among the Chickens by P. G. Woodhouse Chapter 21 The Calm Before the Storm Beale, I said, are you drunk? Wish I was, sir, said the hired man. Then what on earth do you mean? Gone? Where have they gone to? Don't know, sir. London, I expect. London? Why? Don't know, sir. When did they go? Oh, you told me that. Didn't they say why they were going? No, sir. Didn't you ask? When you saw them packing up and going to the station, didn't you do anything? No, sir. Why on earth not? I didn't see them, sir. I only found out as they'd gone after they'd been and went, sir. Walking down by the net and mackerel, met one of them coast guards. Oh, says he, so you're moving. Who's a-moving, I says to him. Well, he says to me, I seen your Mr. Eukeridge and his missus get into the three o'clock train for Axminster. I thought as you was all a-moving. Ho, I says, ho, wondering, and I goes on. When I gets back, I asked the missus did she see them packing their boxes, and she says, no, she says, they didn't pack no boxes as she knowed of, and blowed if they had, Mr. Garnet, sir. What, they didn't pack? No, sir. We looked at one another. Beale, I said, sir. Do you know what I think? Yes, sir. They've bolted. So I says to the missus, sir. It struck me right off, in a manner of speaking. This is awful, I said. Yes, sir. His face betrayed no emotion, but he was one of those men whose expression never varies. It's a way they have in the army. This wants thinking out, Beale, I said. Yes, sir. You'd better ask Mrs. Beale to give me some dinner, and then I'll think it over. Yes, sir. I was in an unpleasant position. Eugridge, by his defection, had left me in charge of the farm. I could dissolve the concern, I supposed, if I wished, and return to London, but I particularly desired to remain in Combe Regis. To complete the victory I'd won on the links, it was necessary for me to continue as I had begun. I was in the position of a general who has conquered a hostile country and is obliged to soothe the feelings of the conquered people before his labors can be considered at an end. I had rushed the professor. It must now be my aim to keep him from regretting that he had been rushed. I must, therefore, stick to my post with the tenacity of an able-bodied leech. There would be trouble. Of that I was certain." As soon as the news got about that Eukridge had gone, the deluge would begin. His creditors would abandon their passive tactics and take active steps. There was a chance that aggressive measures would be confined to the enemy at our gates, the tradesmen of Combe Regis. But the probability was that the news would spread and the injured merchants of Dorchester and Axminster rush to the scene of hostilities. I summoned Beale after dinner and held a council of war. It was no time for airy persiflage. I said, Beale, we're in the cart. Sir? Mr. Eukridge going away like this has left me in a most unpleasant position. I would like to talk it over with you. I dare say you know that we, that Mr. Eukridge, owes a considerable amount of money round about here to tradesmen. Yes, sir. Well, when they found out that he has, er, shot the moon, sir, suggested the hired retainer helpfully. Gone to town, I amended. When they find out that he has gone up to town, they are likely to come bothering us a good deal. Yes, sir. I fancy that we shall have them all round here tomorrow. News of this sort always spreads quickly. The point is, then, what are we to do? He propounded no scheme, but stood in an easy attitude of attention, waiting for me to continue. I continued. Let's see exactly how we stand, I said. 
My point is that I particularly wish to go on living down here for at least another fortnight. Of course, my position is simple. I am Mr. Eukridge's guest. I shall go on living as I have been doing up to the present. He asked me down here to help him look after the fowls, so I shall go on looking after them. Complications set in when we come to consider you and Mrs. Beale. I suppose you won't care to stop on after this. The hired retainer scratched his chin and glanced out of the window. The moon was up, and the garden looked cool and mysterious in the dim light. "'It's a pretty place, Mr. Garnet, sir,' he said. "'It is,' I said, "'but about other considerations. "'There's the matter of wages. "'Are yours in arrears?' "'Yes, sir, a month.' "'And Mrs. Beale's the same, I suppose?' "'Yes, sir, a month.' "'Hm.' "'Well, it seems to me, Beale, "'you can't lose anything by stopping on.' "'I can't be paid any less than I have been, sir.' he agreed. Exactly. And, as you say, it's a pretty place. You might as well stop on and help me in the fowl run. What do you think? Very well, sir. And Mrs. Beale will do the same? Yes, sir. That's excellent. You're a hero, Beale. I shan't forget you. There's a check coming to me from a magazine in another week for a short story. When it arrives... I'll look into that matter of back wages. Tell Mrs. Beale I'm much obliged to her, will you? Yes, sir. Having concluded that delicate business, I lit my pipe and strolled out into the garden with Bob. I cursed Eukridge as I walked. It was abominable of him to desert me in this way. Even if I had not been his friend, it would have been bad. The fact that we had known each other for years made it doubly discreditable. He might at least have warned me, and given me the option of leaving the sinking ship with him. But, I reflected, I ought not to be surprised. His whole career, as long as I had known him, had been dotted with little eccentricities of a type which an unfeeling world generally stigmatizes as shady. They were small things, it was true, but they ought to have warned me. We are most of us wise after the event. When the wind is blown, we can generally discover a multitude of straws which should have shown us which way it was blowing. Once, I remembered, in our schoolmaster days, when guineas, though regular, were few, we had had occasion to increase his wardrobe. If I recollect rightly, he thought he had a chance of a good position in the tutoring line, and only needed good clothes to make it his. We took four pounds of his salary in advance. He was in the habit of doing this. He never had any salary left by the end of term, it having vanished in advance loans beforehand. With this he was to buy two suits, a hat, new boots, and collars. When it came to making the purchases, he found what he had overlooked previously in his optimistic way, that four pounds did not go very far. At the time, I remember, I thought his method of grappling with the situation humorous. He bought a hat for three and sixpence, and got the suits and boots on the installment system, paying a small sum in advance, as earnest of more to come. Then he pawned one suit to pay for the first few installments, and finally departed to be known no more. His address he had given, with a false name, at an empty house and when the tailor arrived with his minions of the law, all he found was an annoyed caretaker and a pile of letters written by himself containing his bill in its various stages of evolution. Or again, there was a bicycle and photograph shop near the school. He went into this one day, and his roving eye fell on a tandem bicycle. He did not want a tandem bicycle, but that influenced him not at all. He ordered it provisionally. He also ordered an enlarging camera, a Kodak, and a magic lantern. The order was booked, and the goods were to be delivered when he had made up his mind concerning them. After a week, the shopman sent round to ask if there were any further particulars which Mr. Eukridge would like to learn before definitely ordering them. Mr. Eukridge sent back word that he was considering the matter, 
and that in the meantime would he be so good as to let him have that little clockwork man in his window, which walked when wound up. Having got this and not paid for it, Eukridge thought that he had done handsomely by the bicycle and photograph man, and that things were square between them. The latter met him a few days afterwards, and expostulated plaintively. Eukridge explained. "'My good man,' he said, "'you know, I really think we need say no more about the matter. Really, you have come out of it very well. Now look here. Which would you rather be owed for, a clockwork man, which is broken and you can have it back, or a tandem bicycle, an enlarging camera, a Kodak, and a magic lantern, what?' His reasoning was too subtle for the uneducated mind. The man retired, puzzled and unpaid, and Eukridge kept the clockwork toy. End of chapter 21「Our knocker advertised no done. Our lawn remained untrodden by hobnailed boots. By lunchtime, I had come to the conclusion that the expected trouble would not occur that day, and I felt that I might well leave my post for the afternoon while I went to the professor's to pay my respects. The professor was out when I arrived. Phyllis was in, and it was not till the evening that I started for the farm again. As I approached, the sound of voices smote my ears. I stopped. I could hear Beale speaking. Then came the rich notes of Vickers the butcher. Then Beale again. Then Dawlish the grocer. Then a chorus. The storm had burst, and in my absence. I blushed for myself. I was in command, and I had deserted the fort in time of need. What must the faithful hired man be thinking of me? Probably he placed me, as he had placed Eukridge, in the ragged ranks of those who have shot the moon. Fortunately, having just come from the professor's, I was in the costume which of all my wardrobe was most calculated to impress. To a casual observer, I should probably suggest wealth and respectability. I stopped for a moment to cool myself, for, as is my habit when pleased with life, I had been walking fast, then opened the gate and strode in, trying to look as opulent as possible. It was an animated scene that met my eyes. In the middle of the lawn stood the devoted Beale, a little more flushed than I had seen him hitherto, parlaying with a burly and excited young man without a coat. Grouped round the pair were some dozen men, young, middle-aged, and old, all talking their hardest. I could distinguish nothing of what they were saying. I noticed that Beale's left cheekbone was a little discolored, and there was a hard, dogged expression on his face. He, too, was in his shirt-sleeves. My entry created no sensation. Nobody, apparently, had heard the latch click, and nobody had caught sight of me. Their eyes were fixed on the young man and Beale. I stood at the gate and watched them. There seemed to have been trouble already. Looking more closely, I perceived sitting on the grass apart a second young man. His face was obscured by a dirty pocket-handkerchief, with which he dabbed tenderly at his features. Every now and then the shirt-sleeved young man flung his hands towards him with an indignant gesture, talking hard the while. It did not need a preternaturally keen observer to deduce what had happened. Beale must have fallen out with the young man who was sitting on the grass and smitten him. 
and now his friend had taken up the quarrel. Now this, I said to myself, is rather interesting. Here in this one farm we have the only three known methods of dealing with duns. Beale is evidently an exponent of the violent method. Eucridge is an apostle of evasion. I shall try conciliation. I wonder which of us will be the most successful. Meanwhile, not to spoil Beale's efforts by allowing him too little scope for experiment, I refrain from making my presence known, and continue to stand by the gate, an interested spectator. Things were evidently moving now. The young man's gestures became more vigorous. The dogged look on Beale's face deepened. The comments of the ring increased in point and pungency. "'What did you hit him for, then?' The question was put, always the same words and with the same air of quiet triumph, at intervals of thirty seconds by a little man in a snuff-colored suit with a purple tie. Nobody ever answered him, or appeared to listen to him, but he seemed each time to think that he had clinched the matter and cornered his opponent. Other voices chimed in. "'You hit him, Charlie! Go on! You hit him! We'll have the law! Go on, Charlie!' Flushed with the favor of the many-headed, Charlie now proceeded from threats to action. His right fist swung round suddenly, but Beale was on the alert. He ducked sharply, and the next moment Charlie was sitting on the ground beside his fallen friend. A hush fell on the ring, and the little man in the purple tie was left repeating his formula without support. I advanced. It seemed to me that the time had come to be conciliatory. Charlie was struggling to his feet, obviously anxious for a second round, and Beale was getting into position once more. In another five minutes, conciliation would be out of the question. "'What's all this?' I said. I may mention here that I do not propose to inflict dialect upon the reader. If he had borne with my narrative so far, I look on him as a friend, and feel that he deserves consideration.' I may not have brought out the fact with sufficient emphasis in the foregoing pages, but nevertheless I protest that I have a conscience. Not so much as a thicky shall we find. My advent caused a stir. Excited men left Beale and rallied round me. Charlie, rising to his feet, found himself dethroned from his position of man of the moment, and stood blinking at the setting sun and opening and shutting his mouth there was a buzz of conversation. "'Don't all speak at once, please,' I said. "'I can't possibly follow what you say. Perhaps you will tell me what you want.' I singled out a short, stout man in grey. He wore the largest whiskers ever seen on a human face. "'It's like this, sir. We all of us want to know where we are.' "'I can tell you that,' I said. "'You're on our lawn.' and I should be much obliged if you would stop digging your heels into it. This was not, I suppose, conciliation in the strictest and best sense of the word. But the thing had to be said. It is the duty of every good citizen to do his best to score off men with whiskers. "'You don't understand me, sir,' he said excitedly. "'When I said we didn't know where we were, it was a manner of speaking.' We want to know how we stand. On your heels, I replied gently, as I pointed out before. I am Brass, sir, of Axminster. My account with Mr. Eucridge is ten pounds, eight shillings, and fourpence. I want to know. The whole strength of the company now joined in. You know me, Mr. Garnet, Appleby, in the high, voice lost in the general roar, and eightpence. My account with Mr. Uke, settle, I represent Bodger. A diversion occurred at this point. Charlie, who had long been eyeing Beale sourly, dashed at him with swinging fists, and was knocked down again. The whole trend of the meeting altered once more. Conciliation became a drug. Violence was what the people wanted. Beale had three fights in rapid succession. I was helpless. Instinct prompted me to join the fray, 
but prudence told me that such a course would be fatal. At least, in a lull, I managed to catch the hired retainer by the arm as he drew back from the prostrate form of his latest victim. "'Drop it, Beale,' I whispered hotly. "'Drop it! We shall never manage these people if you knock them about. Go indoors and stay there while I talk to them.' "'Mr. Garnet, sir,' said he, the light of battle dying out of his eyes, "'it's ard! It's cruel ard!' I ain't had a turn-up, not to call a turn-up, since I've been a time-expired man. I ain't hittin' of em, Mr. Garnet, sir, not hard I ain't. That there first of em he played me dirty, hittin' at me when I wasn't looking. They can't say as I started it. That's all right, Beale, I said soothingly. I know it wasn't your fault, and I know it's hard on you to have to stop but I wish you would go indoors. I must talk to these men, and we shan't have a moment's peace while you're here. Cut along. Very well, sir, but it's hard. Mayn't I have just one go at that Charlie, Mr. Garnet? he asked wistfully. No, no, go in. And if they goes for you, sir, and tries to wipe the face off you? They won't, they won't. If they do, I'll shout for you. He went reluctantly into the house, and I turned again to my audience. If you will kindly be quiet for a moment, I said. I am Appleby, Mr. Garnet, in the high street. Mr. Eukridge, eight pounds fourteen shillings. Kindly glance. I waved my hands wildly above my head. Stop, 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 I shouted. The babble continued, but diminished gradually in volume. Through the trees, as I waited, I caught a glimpse of the sea. I wished I was out on the cob, where beyond these voices there was peace. My head was beginning to ache, and I felt faint for want of food. "'Gentlemen!' I cried as the noise died away. The latch of the gate clicked. I looked up, and saw a tall, thin young man in a frock coat and silk hat enter the garden. It was the first time I had seen the costume in the country. He approached me. "'Mr. Eukridge, sir,' he said. "'My name is Garnet. Mr. Eukridge is away at the moment.' "'I come from Whiteley's, Mr. Garnet. Our Mr. Blenkinsop, having written on several occasions to Mr. Eukridge, calling his attention to the fact that his account has been allowed to mount to a considerable figure, and, having received no satisfactory reply, desired me to visit him. I am sorry that he is not at home. "'So am I,' I said with feeling. "'Do you expect him to return shortly?' "'No,' I said. "'I do not.' He was looking curiously at the expectant ban of duns, I forestalled his question. "'Those are some of Mr. Eukridge's creditors,' I said. "'I am just about to address them. Perhaps you will take a seat. The grass is quite dry. My remarks will embrace you as well as them.' Comprehension came into his face, and the natural man in him peeped through the polish. "'Great Scott! Has he done a bunk?' he cried. "'To the best of my knowledge?' Yes, I said. He whistled. I turned again to the local talent. Gentlemen, I shouted. Hear, hear, said some idiot. Gentlemen, I intend to be quite frank with you. We must decide just how matters stand between us. A voice, where's Eukridge? Mr. Eukridge left for London suddenly, bitter laughter, yesterday afternoon. Personally, I think he will come back very shortly. Hoots of derision greeted this prophecy. I resumed. I fail to see your object in coming here. I have nothing for you. I couldn't pay your bills if I wanted to. It began to be borne upon me that I was becoming unpopular. I am here simply as Mr. Eukridge's guest, I proceeded. After all, why should I spare the man? I have nothing whatever to do with his business affairs. 
I refuse absolutely to be regarded as in any way indebted to you. I am sorry for you. You have my sympathy. That is all I can give you. Sympathy and good advice. Dissatisfaction. I was getting myself disliked. And I had meant to be so conciliatory, to speak to these unfortunates words of cheer which should be as olive oil poured into a wound. For I really did sympathize with them. I considered that Eucridge had used them disgracefully. But I was irritated. My head ached abominably. "'Then am I to tell our Mr. Blenkinsop,' asked the frock-coated one, "'that the money is not and will not be forthcoming?' "'When the next time you smoke a quiet cigar with your Mr. Blenkinsop,' I replied courteously, "'and find the conversation flagging, I rather think I should say something of the sort.' "'We shall, of course, instruct our solicitors at once to institute legal proceedings against your Mr. Eucridge.' "'Don't call him my Mr. Eucridge. You can do whatever you please.' "'That is your last word on the subject?' I hope so, but I fear not. "'Where's our money?' demanded a discontented voice from the crowd. An idea struck me. "'Beal!' I shouted. Out came the hired retainer at the double. I fancy he thought that his help was needed to save me from my friends. He slowed down, seeing me as yet unassaulted. "'Sir,' he said, "'Isn't there a case of that whiskey left somewhere, Beale?' I had struck the right note. There was a hush of pleased anticipation among the audience. "'Yes, sir, one. Then bring it out here and open it.' Beale looked pained. "'For them, sir?' he ejaculated. "'Yes. Hurry up.' He hesitated, then, without a word, went into the house. A hearty cheer went up as he reappeared with the case. I proceeded indoors in search of glasses and water. Coming out, I realized my folly in having left Beale alone with our visitors even for a minute. A brisk battle was raging between him and a man whom I do not remember to have seen before. The frock-coated young man was looking on with a pale fear stamped upon his face but the rest of the crowd were shouting advice and encouragement was being given to Beale. How, I wondered, had he pacified the mob? I soon discovered. As I ran up as quickly as I could, hampered as I was by the jugs and glasses, Beale knocked his man out with the clean precision of the experienced boxer, and the crowd explained in chorus that it was the pot-boy from the netted mackerel. Like everything else, the whiskey had not been paid for, and the pot-boy, arriving just as the case was being opened, had made a gallant effort to save it from being distributed free to his fellow-citizens. By the time he came to, the glasses were circulating merrily, and, on observing this, he accepted the situation philosophically enough and took his turn and turn about with the others. Everybody was now in excellent fettle. The only malcontents were Beale, whose heart plainly bled at the waste of good Scotch whisky, and the frock-coated young man, who was still pallid. I was just congratulating myself, as I eyed the revelers, on having achieved a masterstroke of strategy, when that demon Charlie, his defeat, I suppose, still rankling, made a suggestion. From his point of view, a timely and ingenious suggestion. "'We can't see the color of our money,' he said pithily, but we can have our own back. That settled it. The battle was over. The most skillful general must sometimes recognize defeat. I recognized it then, and threw up my hand. I could do nothing further with them. I had done my best for the farm. I could do no more. I lit my pipe and strolled into the paddock. Chaos followed. Indoors and out of doors they raged without check. Even Beale gave the thing up. He knocked Charlie into a flower bed and then disappeared in the direction of the kitchen. It was growing dusk. 
From inside the house came faint sounds of bibulous mirth, as the sacking party emptied the rooms of their contents. In the fowl run a hen was crooning sleepily in its coop. It was a very soft, liquid, soothing sound. Presently out came the invaders with their loot, one with a picture, another with a vase, another bearing the gramophone upside down. They were singing in many keys and times. Then I heard somebody, Charlie again, it seemed to me, propose a raid on the fowl run. The fowls had had their moments of unrest since they had been our property, but what they had gone through with us was peace compared to what befell them then. Not even on the second evening of our visit, when we had run unmeasured miles in pursuit of them, had there been such confusion. Roused abruptly from their beauty sleep, they fled in all directions. Their pursuers, roaring with laughter, staggered after them. They stumbled over one another. The summer evening was made hideous with the noise of them. "'Disgraceful, sir. Is it not disgraceful?' said a voice in my ear. The young man from Whiteley stood beside me. He did not look happy. His forehead was damp. Somebody seemed to have stepped on his hat, and his coat was smeared with mold. I was turning to answer him, when from the dusk in the direction of the house came a sudden roar. A passionate appeal to the world in general to tell the speaker what all this meant. There was only one man of my acquaintance with a voice like that. I walked without hurry towards him. "'Good evening, Eucridge,' I said. End of chapter 22「Is that you, Garney, old horse? What's up? What's the matter? Has everyone gone mad? Who are those infernal scoundrels in the fowl run? What are they doing? What's been happening? I have been entertaining a little meeting of your creditors, I said, and now they are entertaining themselves. But what do you let them do it for? What is one amongst so many? Well, pon my Sam! moaned Eucridge, as, her sardonic calm laid aside, that sinister hen which we called Aunt Elizabeth flashed past us, pursued by the whiskered criminal. "'It's a little hard. I can't go away for a day.' "'You certainly can't. You're right there. You can't go away without a word.' "'Without a word? What do you mean, Garney, old boy? Pull yourself together. You're overexcited.' Do you mean to tell me you didn't get my note? What note? The one I left on the dining-room table. There was no note there. What? I was reminded of the scene that had taken place on the first day of our visit. Feel in your pockets, I said. Why, damn, here it is, he said in amazement. Of course. Where did you expect it would be? Was it important? Why, it explained the whole thing. Then, I said, I wish you would let me read it. A note like that ought to be worth reading. It was telling you to sit tight and not worry about us going away. That's good about worrying. You're a thoughtful chap, Eucridge. Because we should be back immediately. And what sent you up to town? Why, we went to touch Millie's Aunt Elizabeth. Oh, I said, a light shining on the darkness of my understanding. You remember Aunt Elizabeth, the old girl who wrote that letter? I know, she called you a gaby. And a guffin? Yes, I remember thinking her a shrewd and discriminating old lady, 
with a great gift for character delineation. So, you want to touch her? That's it. We had to have more money. So, I naturally thought of her. And Elizabeth isn't what you might call an admirer of mine. Bless her for that. But she's very fond of Millie, and would do anything if she's allowed to chuck about a few home truths before doing it. So we went off together, looked her up at her house, stated our case, and collected the stuff. Millie and I shared the work. She did the asking, while I inquired after the rheumatism. She mentioned the figure that would clear us. I patted the dog. Little beast. Got after me when I wasn't looking and chewed my ankle. Thank heaven. In the end, Millie got the money, and I got the home truths. Did she call you a gaby? Twice. And a guffin three times. Your Aunt Elizabeth is beginning to fascinate me. She seems just the sort of woman I would like. Well, you got the money? Rather. And I'll tell you another thing, old horse. I scored heavily at the end of the visit. She got to the quoting proverb stage by that time. Ah, my dear, she said to Milly, marry in haste, repent at leisure. Milly stood up to her like a little brick. I'm afraid that proverb doesn't apply to me, Aunt Elizabeth, she said, because I haven't repented. What do you think of that, laddie? Of course she hasn't had much leisure lately, I agreed. Eucridge's jaw dropped slightly, but he rallied swiftly. Idiot! That wasn't what she meant. Millie's an angel. Of course she is, I said cordially. She's a precious sight too good for you, you old rotter. You bear that fact steadily in mind, and we'll make something of you yet. At this point Mrs. Eugridge joined us. She had been exploring the house and noting the damage done. Her eyes were open to their fullest extent. Oh, Mr. Garnet, couldn't you have stopped them? I felt a worm. Had I done as much as I might have done to stem the tide? I'm awfully sorry, Mrs. Eugridge, I said humbly. I really don't think I could have done much more. We tried every method. Beale had seven fights, and I made a speech on the lawn, but it was all no good. Directly they had finished the whiskey. Eucridge's cry was like that of a lost spirit. They didn't get hold of the whiskey. They did. It seemed to me that it would smooth things down a little if I served it out. The mob had begun to get a trifle out of hand. I thought those horrid men were making a lot of noise, said Mrs. Eucridge. Eucridge preserved a gloomy silence. Of all the disasters of that stricken field, I think the one that came home most poignantly to him was the loss of the whiskey. It seemed to strike him like a blow. "'Isn't it about time to collect these men and explain things?' I suggested. "'I don't believe any of them know you've come back.' "'They will,' said Eucridge grimly, coming out of his trance. "'They soon will. Where's Beale? Beale!' The hired retainer came running out at the sound of the well-remembered voice. "'Lummy, Mr. Eucridge, sir?' he gasped. It was the first time Beale had ever betrayed any real emotion in my presence. To him, I suppose the return of Eucridge was as sensational and astonishing an event as a reappearance from the tomb. He was not accustomed to find those who had shot the moon revisiting their ancient haunts. Beale, go round the place and tell those scoundrels that I've come back, and would like a word with them on the lawn. And if you find any of them stealing the fowls, knock them down. I have knocked down one or two, said Beale with approval. That Charlie. Beale, said Eucridge, much moved, you're an excellent fellow. One of the very best. I will pay you your back wages before I go to bed. These fellers, sir, said Beale, having expressed his gratification, they've been and scattered most of them birds already, sir. They've been chasing of them this half hour back. Eucridge groaned. Scoundrels! Demons! Beale went off. Millie, old girl, 
said Eugridge, adjusting the ginger-beer wire behind his ears and hoisting up his grey flannel trousers, which showed an inclination to sag. "'You'd better go indoors. I propose to speak pretty chattily to these blighters, and in the heat of the moment one or two expressions might occur to me which you would not like. It would hamper me your being there.' Mrs. Eugridge went into the house, and the vanguard of the audience began to come onto the lawn. Several of them looked flushed and disheveled. I have a suspicion that Beale had shaken sobriety into them. Charlie, I noticed, had a black eye. They assembled on the lawn in the moonlight, and Eugridge, with his cap well over his eyes, and his mackintosh hanging round him like a Roman toga, surveyed them sternly and began his speech. You, 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 you scoundrels, you blighters, you worms, you weeds. I always like to think of Stanley Fanshaw Eugridge as I saw him at that moment. There have been times during a friendship of many years when his conduct did not recommend itself to me. It has sometimes happened that I have seen flaws in him. But on this occasion he was at his best. He was eloquent. He dominated his audience. Long before he had finished, I was feeling relieved that he had thought of sending Mrs. Eucridge indoors when he did. And Beale was hanging on his words with a look in his eyes which I had never seen there before, a look of reverence, almost of awe, the look of a disciple who listens to a master. He poured scorn upon his hearers, and they quailed. He flung invective at them, and they wilted. Strange oaths, learned among strange men on cattle ships or gleaned on the waterfronts of Buenos Aires and San Francisco, slid into the stream of his speech. It was hard, he said in part, it was, upon his Sam, a little hard that a gentleman, a gentleman, moreover, who had done so much to stimulate local trade with large orders and what not, could not run up to London for five minutes on business without having his private grounds turned upside down by a gang of cattleship-adjectived San Francisco substantives who behaved as if the whole of the Buenos Aires phrased place belonged to them. He had intended to do well by them. He had meant to continue putting business in their way, expanding their trade. But would he after what had occurred? Not by a jugful. As soon as ever the sun had risen and another day begun, their miserable accounts should be paid in full and their connection with him cut off. Afterwards, it was probable that he would institute legal proceedings against them in the matter of trespass and wholesale damage to property and if they didn't all end their infernal days in some dashed prison, they might consider themselves uncommonly lucky. And if they didn't make themselves scarce in considerably under two ticks, he proposed to see what could be done with Beale's shotgun. Beale here withdrew with a pleased expression to fetch the weapon. He was sick of them. They were blighters creatures that it would be fulsome flattery to describe as human beings. He would call them skunks, only he did not see what the skunks had done to be compared with them. And now they might go. Quick. We were quiet at the farm that night. Eucridge sat like Marius among the ruins of Carthage and refused to speak. Eventually he took Bob with him and went for a walk. Half an hour later I, too, wearied of the scene of desolation. My errant steps took me in the direction of the sea. As I approached I was aware of a figure standing in the moonlight, gazing silently out over the waters. Beside the figure was a dog. The dark moments of optimistic minds are sacred and I would no more have ventured to break in on Eucridge's thoughts at that moment than, if I had been a general in the Grand Army, I would have opened conversation with Napoleon during the retreat from Moscow. I was withdrawing as softly as I could when my foot grated on the shingle. Eucridge turned. "'Hello, Garney!' "'Hello, old man,' I murmured in a death-bedside voice. 
he came towards me, Bob trotting at his heels. And as he came, I saw with astonishment that his mien was calm, even cheerful. I should have known my Eucridge better than to be astonished. You cannot keep a good man down, and already Stanley Fanshaw Eucridge was himself again. His eyes sparkled buoyantly behind their pince-nez. "'Garney, old horse, I've been thinking, laddie. I've got an idea, the idea of a lifetime, the best ever pon my Sam. I'm going to start a duck-farm.' "'A duck-farm?' "'A duck-farm, laddie, and run it without water. My theory is, you see, that ducks get thin by taking exercise and swimming about all over the place, so that if you kept them always on land, they'd get jolly fat in about half the time, and no trouble and expense. See, what? Not a flaw in it, old horse. I've thought the whole thing out.' He took my arm affectionately. "'Now listen.' We'll say that the profits on the first year at a conservative estimate. The end of Love Among the Chickens by P. G. Woodhouse, read by Mark Nelson. This recording is in the public domain.